Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, we've come to church listening and hoping for a word of good news. Proclaim the gospel to us today. Amen. Our scripture lesson today is short, only two verses, but it could be even shorter because I really want to focus on only one word that Paul uses, gospel a word which means good news. But I'm going to get it messed up, dirty in a way, because I don't want to talk about it in any kind of pristine and theological way only. I want to talk about it in a real-world way. Let's listen to those two verses. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin, for I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. I've said from this pulpit before that the doctrine of original sin is one of the most profound doctrines of the faith. We humans are limited. We are tempted to pride or to shame, and we have free choice, so we will never be perfect, and we will never make perfect choices. In the end, we're saved only by grace. And yet sometimes Christians have used the doctrine of original sin as an enormous cop-out. Misunderstood, the doctrine can be taken to the extremes of just, well, giving up and doing what we want sometimes. And we are sinners, there's no good in us, and since the only hope we have is God's radical forgiveness, snatching us from the jaws of death and the gates of hell, well, let's just give up hoping the world is going to become a better place. Let's just pray that we'll one day be taken to a better world. Yet maybe some things in this world have gotten better. Want to hear some good news? Since 1900, global life expectancy has more than doubled, and the average age is now 70 years old. That is worldwide. In America, in 1900, average life expectancy was 47. Today, in the country that has the lowest life expectancy, the Central African Republic, it is 53 years old. Child mortality has plunged a hundredfold since 1750. Again, I am not reporting a first world phenomenon. Though it is true that third world countries have lagged, there is not a single country on earth where child mortality is not lower than it was in 1950. Well, one might ask about life expectancy. Well, if people are living longer, are their physical bodies outlasting their mental capacities? 
Yes, that's sometimes true, and we need to address quality of life, but you might like hearing that the average age of diagnosis of dementia has risen from 80 years old in the year 2000 to 83 years old today. Yes, there are a lot of problems in the world, but that's some encouraging news of progress. Now, there have been long chapters of human history where a bleak view of the future seems justified. In some places and times, often lasting centuries, there was little hope for future progress because there was so little evidence of progress in the past. Times of great stress and hardship, times of tyranny, of never-ending wars, times when most children did not live to be adults of widespread death due to viruses uncontained, of centuries of enslavement, times when designated undesirables were given little hope of ever being treated with any kind of dignity. And there are still many bleak places in our world. But do you want some good news about problems that once seemed beyond solving? Worldwide, starvation has been on a steep decline. 45 years ago, 35% of the world's population was undernourished. Today's level is still unacceptable, but it's much less at 13%. And this is true despite an increase of almost 5 billion people in the world. Famines are now continuous realities only in Ethiopia and Sudan. Poverty is hard to measure, but by whatever measure is used, there has been an incredible shift in the world from extreme poverty where food, shelter, and clothing are at issue. True, there remains tremendous inequality. But if the question is not who has more, but who has enough, the world has made huge strides. And most of the population today has available to them what was not even available to the Carnegie's, Mellon's, or Rockefeller's of the 1800s. Indoor plumbing, chlorinated water, antibiotics, and a number of means of communication and transportation. Now Christians have through the centuries clung to the hope that the world and our lives are in God's hands. We are called to trust in God and pray to God in times of trouble. We trust that God hears the cries of those who are in need, the oppressed, the hungry, the sick, the dying. Faith truly has been a source of strength and a means of grace. But trust in God sometimes has been taken to extremes when people wait for God to do what they can do for themselves and for others, when logical, common-sense measures are not followed, such as while praying for health, not washing hands or exercising and eating right or taking antibiotics or getting vaccinated or abstaining from controlled substances. Want some good news? Eliminated today are the mass killers that were smallpox, elephantitis, river blindness, and blinding trachoma. And it looks like the day is coming when measles, rubella, y'all, sleeping sickness, and hookworm might be eliminated as well. Today, AIDS is now a manageable disease in many cases. 
Over the centuries, Christians have not only placed their own lives in God's hands, but they have placed the lives of others in God's hands, praying for others around the world. Surely God will hear the cries of those who are at risk in neighborhoods that are not our own or in places of need on other continents or in the lives and cultures of those people that we do not understand but for whom we worry. But... Some Christians who in prayer place these matters in God's hands leave prayer and return to an operating assumption in their lives that really though the problems and wrongs of this world, well, they've always been there. Nothing's ever going to change. Violence and war, racism, inequality, hatred, they're always going to be with us. People are going to continue to kill each other on the streets and on the battlefield. Racism and greed are woven into the fabric of our world. Tribalism and nationalism will always lead to wars between states or civil wars within them. But is that true? That nothing gets better in so many of these areas? Wars have greatly decreased. At the end of World War II, there were 300 battle deaths per 100,000 people. Since then, the line has worked its way down to where in 2016, there was 1.2 war deaths per 100,000 people. Now, we know of the recent terrible tragedy of 4 million Syrian refugees. It was awful. And this congregation was very generous in response. I'm very proud of how you responded. But that number is dwarfed by 10 million during the Bangladesh War, 14 million caused by the partition of India, and 60 million caused by the Second World War. And while there is so much that needs yet to be done, any honest measurement debunks the notion that no progress has been made in granting equal rights in terms of race, gender, and sexual orientation. In 1900, women could vote in only one country. Today, they can vote in every country in which men can vote but one, Vatican City. The poverty rate among African Americans has dropped from 55% in 1960 to 18.8% in 2019, and life expectancy has risen from 33, can you believe that? 33 in 1900 to 75 today. For whites, it is 77 years, still a two-year gap. Now, so much needs to be done to overcome racism. But the self-defeating notion that nothing has changed cannot be supported by the data. We can do better because we have done better. We are capable of doing better. Here's some more random good news. Crime rates have fallen, with drugs being the biggest drag on their falling further. Accidental poisonings have decreased, with drug overdoses being the big drag on their falling further. Thanks to driving laws, seat belts, safer cars, and a decrease in drunk driving, there has been a 24-fold reduction in automobile deaths the last century. Now, it's not good news on every front. For instance, global warming is getting worse, and the world has got to give it greater attention. 
I don't know what it'll mean. It might mean, among other things, getting used to the idea of safer nuclear power. I don't know, but it has to be addressed. World population continues to grow, though the line is curving toward the day of decline. So I'm not being Pollyannish, but simply pointing to data that suggests that in many other measures of human well-being, including areas of justice and compassion, there is data showing that the world is making progress. Now, the reasons why progress has been made is complicated, but the data shows that overall the world has advanced even in areas near and dear to Jesus' heart, providing shelter for the homeless, food for the starving, healing for the sick, comfort for the dying. That's the contention, at least, of the book Enlightenment Now by Harvard professor Steven Pinker although he doesn't much care what Jesus thought. It is important to Pinker to focus on verifiable data in discussing whether or not progress is being made in the world, and he's relentless in presenting raw data and graphs, much of which I quoted in my sermon, while sometimes updating his 2018 numbers to 2021 numbers. Now, anyone can quote and shape statistics, of course, but when I did independent research on the web to verify, I found numbers consistent with those that he reported. And Pinker also adds that almost nobody knows this good news. Whether the topic is politics, race relations, crime, the pandemic, the state of education, or other areas, we've been given the sense that, that our world sometimes is spiraling down. And many accept as fact that the world is becoming more dangerous and quality of life is declining for all but the wealthy. Nothing has changed. We've gotten nowhere or phrases that are frequently heard, whether the topic is human rights, race relations, crime in the streets, or war in the world. What is odd about these convictions, Pinker says, is that when you ask most people if their personal future is bright, most say yes. And again, I'm not talking about first world Americans. I'm talking about the world's population. Researchers call this the optimism gap, where one is optimistic about one's own life, but pessimistic about the world. Why is that? Why are we Americans so quick to jump to the conclusion either that nothing has changed or that nothing will change when it comes to the problems and evils of life? Now, Pinker, the Harvard professor, has his own opinions, which predictably <laughs> he backs up with data and graphs. He points to the human psyche, the human fascination that we have with shocking and disturbing stories. They stick with you. You remember the interesting stuff. You forget the boring, often good stuff. And then when a topic comes up, the first thing that comes to your mind is the last bad and shocking thing you heard about it. He points to journalists who in this cable and internet age are rewarded for stories that grab attention. And because we consumers choose the news we want to hear and read, media silos are quick to provide stories about the failings and dangers of those of whom we disagree. And we get this looming sense of catastrophe unless one side wins. He points to the academics who are rewarded for critique, 
Most PhDs in the humanities and social sciences, they're not given for dissertations about what's working. They write dissertations and awarded PhDs about what is not working and what needs to be fixed. And he points to religious people who he says, let their own convictions get in the way of reason and data. Pinker himself is an academic, and he is empathetic about why things are the way they are. He says, look, humans are wired the way they are because while we are capable of reason, we are really storytelling creatures. And he says that journalists, they need viewers and readers if they want to get paid. And without journalism, the problems and wrongs of life would never be exposed. Politicians go way overboard. But having politicians go after each other at least is a sign of democracy. And in Pinker's view, there's more possibility of human well-being in democracies than there is in, under totalitarian governments. And academics also keep us on our toes with their critiques, but they also do the deep dive study that lead to breakthroughs and to progress. Sadly. The only people for whom Pinker doesn't give a break are religious people. He seems to think that all those who believe in God are incapable of trusting science, believing data, or considering other points of view. He doesn't consider that Christians and other religious people might make the same mistakes as others, only we do it with a religious accent. But let's leave that alone for now. I'll take that up with Pinker if and when the Harvard professor ever gets me on the phone or on a Zoom call and wants to have a conversation about it. I'll wait for that day. But what I will say is that religious people, including Christians, are like journalists and politicians and academics in that we sometimes just plain get in our own way. The Christian faith is about the gospel. It is about good news. And the gospel rightly heard and believed and lived has been in this world a force for good because it has been about love and it has been about hope. I can understand why shock and anger are sometimes appropriate and are needed to identify wrong and demand change and to galvanize people into doing something about it. But over the centuries, hope that we actually can become better and do better has been a much better motivator than despair and anger and shame and hatred. Hope inspires persistence and optimism and study and hard work and where there is failing, hopeful people try again. Here's where Christians have gone wrong. They have gone wrong when they have seen the gospel of Jesus Christ as an out only, an out, simply a ticket out of sin and death, out of engagement with the world, out of the hard work of doing something about the areas of life of which Jesus himself was so deeply concerned while he lived in this world. No, the gospel as presented by the New Testament, the gospel as presented by Jesus is not about an out. It is about an in. It is a call to followers of Jesus to go into the world not only to baptize and teach and to preach, but to work for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God which is in the world, not just in the world to come.
What the gospel is not are those notions that I mentioned earlier in the sermon. It is not believing that this world itself is evil or that God's realm is only something that is to come. It is understandable that there have been times and places where Christians have clung to the hope that they'll be rescued from this life because they were so miserable in it. Hoping and praying for the sweet by and by sustained many a slave who had almost nothing else to cling to and is what sustained parents in centuries past who outlived most of their children. But even though in Jesus' day the average life expectancy was in the 30s, that Jesus and his followers lived under a totalitarian government and poverty and death due to now curable diseases was rampant, his message was not about escape or about taking Pilate's way out of washing his hands of the world's problems. In his very first sermon, he announced that the kingdom of God is at hand, and he used a verse that was present tense, not future tense, right now, right here in this place. The kingdom of God is at hand. And that he wasn't speaking simply of calling people to conversion, but calling them to engagement, he soon made very clear. Matthew says that the beginning of his ministry was about teaching, preaching, and healing. And when Jesus heard that his imprisoned cousin, John, was discouraged and wondering if Jesus was just yet another failed Messiah, Jesus sent this message to him, John, the blind are seeing now. The lame are walking. Those who have leprosy, they are being cleansed. The deaf are hearing. The dead are being raised. The good news is being preached to the poor. And when Jesus told his disciples to follow him, it was to do that same work of the kingdom. Confronted by the hungry, he told the disciples, go find some bread. Confronted by the sick, he told them to help in the healing. And he set the self-righteous straight, and he told those with resources to put their resources to compassionate use. The gospel certainly is not this idea that we just need to trust and believe and that God will work things out on God's own and all that we need to do is to pray for God to get it done. Yes, I believe that God is in all that is good. But this notion that we have no role in what needs to be done, that's the notion that we most need to surrender. Remember all that real-life good news of progress that I scattered throughout the early part of this sermon, advances in health, in peace, in combating violence, in life expectancy, the thing that both Pinker and the Jesus he doesn't believe in would emphasize is that none of these things happened without our being engaged and committed to doing something. It took a massive Commitment to see problems as problems to be solved and not just saying, well, that's the way it always has been. Marriages can heal. Trauma can be overcome. Inequities can be addressed. Diseases can be healed. And many that cannot be healed can now be better managed. Those who live on the edge of starvation or who are in abusive families and cultures can be delivered. But when it happens, it is never because all of us wished it would happen. It is because many, including those who pray for God to be in it, help make it so. 
Christians are not alone in wanting life to get better for all people. But our faith gives us a perspective. We want life to be better for everyone. And when we see justice and compassion in the world, we go beyond relief to giving thanks because we see God's hand in it. And yes, we also see evidence of a world to come when God will make all things new. But friends, this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is about right now, not just the world to come. We are known now, and we are loved, and we are forgiven, and we are called. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's open our eyes to what is good in us or what can be good in us and what can be good in this world, and then let's join in in spreading the goodness to others. So much more of what reflects Jesus' heart can be done. Let's follow Jesus and join with others who believe in him and join with others who don't believe in him to help accomplish what Jesus said God wants accomplished in this world. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.